All right, in Matthew chapter 5, we are seeing Jesus enter into this most famous sermon of his called the Sermon on the Mount. And we saw last week his first beatitude when he began teaching the people. The people sat, they gathered, they've been coming from all around the region, even from across into other places, into other nations. They're hearing of the things that Jesus is doing, and they are fascinated. They want to come see this. There are many people who are sick, who are coming to Jesus because they heard that this is a healer. He's doing some fantastic things. They've heard that he says profound things that the other, the other religious teachers are not saying. So he is drawing a crowd. But most of the crowd that's around him are people who have come with a need that they believe only Jesus can fulfill. If they believe a doctor could fix them, they would go to a doctor. If they believe that the religious leaders had all the answers, they would just go to them. But these people are coming to Jesus because he has something that's different. And they can see that. And we talked last week, this first beatitude... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about how that is, at its very core, a beggarly spirit. A spirit that knows, apart from the charity of another, I cannot survive. I cannot live. Today we're going to look at the second one, the second beatitude. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, this one kind of looks like a paradox, right? You kind of have two completely separate ideas that don't really go together in our natural way of thinking. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we're going to dig into this, exactly what exactly this paradox is about. Is it really a paradox? Do these ideas not make sense and Jesus is just... He's just like the Pharisees were saying, he's just a madman. (laughs) He doesn't know what he's talking about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Does anybody have any idea what that's talking about? Come on, people, Jesus is out of his mind. We're going to be talking about this. But first, let me kind of introduce this with a little illustration that every single one of us has been in, or perhaps are, at in our life. In a marriage relationship... Or just a friendship, a strong friendship where there's a close bind between you and another person. Or like I said, in a marital relationship where you are supposed to be one in heart, soul, and mind. We have seasons of strife, right? We have seasons where we don't really seem to be very unified. We're not really displaying the unity of soul that we have with our spouse. There are seasons of life that are like that. We've all been there. And, there, and this is sometimes, these, these, these types of disunity are caused by a plethora of different <coughs> things. Stuff comes up. Usually it has something to do with pride or some sort of self-centeredness. Stuff that isn't associated with pride or self-centeredness don't usually disrupt unity. 
between you and your spouse or you and a close friend. Usually it has to do with some sort of fault. And sometimes we go go in even deeper. Sometimes this disunity is caused because your spouse or you will not take ownership of your faults. You're just kind of constantly excusing them away or sweeping them under the rug. The spouse refuses to admit fault. The friend refuses to admit fault, take ownership for it. They refuse to ask for forgiveness for the fault. They refuse to confess their sin because they don't really want to see that what they did was actually wrong. It's really just an issue of pride and it it disrupts this bond that we're supposed to have with our spouse or with friends, with people we're all part of the body of Christ. If we're not confessing our sins one to another, that disrupts unity. It's not something that time can just fix. Just kind of blow over like sand in the desert. Sand in the desert will cover ruins of an old town if you give it time. But the ruins are still there. They're just buried deep. It'll resurface again. People go digging. It'll resurface. It'll still be there. It'll still be discovered. It was always there all along. It was just covered by the sand. You couldn't see it, but it was still there. And perhaps the reason that we get like this is that for some reason, the other person doesn't you know, we, we commit a sin, we are at fault for something that we know we need to confess, we know we need to ask forgiveness for, but for some, you know, for, for one reason or another, maybe the other person just doesn't seem safe. The other person, we just, perhaps we sense that if we were to admit this fault, they would take advantage of us. They would push it further, drive us down into the ground. Perhaps they just don't feel safe because of long-term disunity long-term self-centeredness. That relationship has become unsafe for either of you to really confess vulnerable things. There just hasn't been unity for a very long time. Or maybe you just get so used to sweeping things under the rug, it just, whenever you sin, it's just no longer a big deal. This is just normal. We're just gonna sweep it under the rug you know what, time will sort everything out. As though time were God. (laughs) As though time had some sort of power to heal your wounds. To heal forgiveness. Does time provide forgiveness? No, time does not provide forgiveness. God provides forgiveness. Your spouse or your friend provides forgiveness for the sins that you commit. Time does not provide forgiveness. When we sweep things under the rug, we are not forgiven. Because we never sought forgiveness. But we like time to be the thing that we seek to for forgiveness. We sin. We refuse to confess. We just hope that it all is going to come together in the end. Things will work itself out. No big deal. I don't need to make this a big deal. I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to confess it. Time will take care of it at the end of all all things. Who's going to remember this? Come on. 
in, our rela- in my relationship with my spouse or with my friend. Five years from now, we're not even going to remember this, that this happened. I don't need to bring it up and make it a big deal. I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to confess it. I don't need to ask for forgiveness. I don't need to repent. Time is going to take care of it. So we refuse to see the big deal. We hide. But this this way of taking care of business, we're going to see today, has serious spiritual implications. This type of living rejects the core of the biblical gospel. Have you ever thought about that? Well, we're going to think about that today. When we don't confess our sins, when we don't ask for forgiveness, we reject the core nature of the gospel itself. When we hide, when we push it down as no big deal, It'll get taken care of. We reject the core nature of the gospel. And this type of living keeps us from walking with God in Christ by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit does not overlook sin. The Spirit, God doesn't just sweep it under the rug. Remember what happened because of our sin? What happened? On the cross. That wasn't swept under the rug. That was full out on display. Damnation for sin. It wasn't swept under the rug, folks. You might sweep it under the rug. God doesn't sweep it under the rug. And that is both fearful and actually a blessing. Sounds strange. But this ties into the paradox that we kind of see here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Or four, verse 4, I'm sorry. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I want to remind you again, like I did last week, the Beatitudes are not codes of moral conduct. They're not just things that you do in order to be better. Nor are they the gospel in and of themselves in the sense that if you do this stuff, then God will reward you with favor. That's not what this is either. It's easy to go through life thinking that our moral conduct are things that if we do them, God will reward us with favor. But that's not how this operates. I wanted to, just in this reminder, I want to, you to see the foundation of this. We already... We, Rich read this this morning, Romans chapter 5. Look there real quick. Because this is foundational to what we're going to be reading today. Romans chapter 5. We're just going to read a couple of these verses. Verses 6 through 8. And it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, so he's, he gives us a spiritual reality here. This actually ties in with last week's message on the poor in spirit. When we were still without strength, we have nothing that we can do to bring favor down from heaven. We have no strength to make God love us more. We have no strength with, or beauty with which we can convince God that we are worthy of him sending his love our direction. 
We've seen him send it other people's direction. But we feel like if I, were, if I just do this or do that or don't do this or don't do that, well then God will see that as some sort of reason to send his love my direction. To send his favor my direction so that I can get some of that. For when we were still without strength, okay, we had nothing with which we could convince God to send his love my direction. Nothing. When we were still without strength in due time, when the time was right, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Is that you? No, that's not me. No, that is you. Christ died for the ungodly when you were without strength, when you were without anything that could attract God's attention. God was already thinking about you. God was already sending you his favor. Before you even thought, the thought, how can I get God's love? God already gave it to you. Before you even wanted it, God sent down his favor. When we were still without strength at the right time, 2,000 years ago, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Okay, he's given the picture like how many of you would die for somebody else? Think of the best person that you know. How realistic is it to think that you would die for their sake? Scarcely does that happen. But yet, perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to, would even dare to die. Okay, so maybe for a good man, you might think it to be reasonable. Yeah, you know what? I really love that person. That person has meant a lot to me. If somebody had a gun to them, I would jump in front of that gun for them. Perhaps there's somebody that we can think of that we would actually do that for. But then he continues, but God, but God, okay? He's distinguishing himself between you and me. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think of the worst person, the person who's the most frustrating person in your life, outside your spouse. (laughs) The person who just is the least likely for you to love. The person who is the least likely to get your attention. The person who just has done nothing for you Perhaps they've lived their whole life against you. They've been your enemy from day one. Can you picture yourself doing what God did? From day one, when Adam bit that apple and Eve bit that apple, we have been at enmity with God ever since. We've been at enmity with God ever since. But even before then, The Bible tells us that even before the foundations of the earth were laid, God had it in his mind to provide a sacrifice for our sins. Before you're even born, God had it in his mind. I'm going to die for your sins. Wayne, I'm going to die for your sins. Before you were even born, God was thinking this. Sandy, God had it in his mind. I'm going to die for your sins before you were even born, before you even wanted it. Christ had it in his mind. I'm going to die for their sins, even though they have done nothing for me. They've been at enmity with me 
since the day they were born. I'm going to demonstrate my love to them like this. While you're still in the uselessness and the depravity and the damnation of your sin, I'm going to provide a way to forgive you. I'm going to provide a way for you to not have to suffer the consequences for your sin. I'm going to suffer the consequences for your sin. When we had nothing that could woo that. We know John 3.16, most of us do anyway. For God so loved the world, and when it says that, for God so, it means for God loved the world in this way. Can you help me out here? How, how's it go? That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is how God shed his love to us. He gave his son to us. So that if we'll just look up to that brazen serpent on the top of that pole, or more literally, more literally with Jesus, when we just look to that crucified Savior hanging on that cross who was cursed for us on a tree, we just look to him and be saved. I mean, think about it. Think of that man who died next to Jesus on the cross. Did he repent? Did he change his ways? No, how'd that conversation go? The, the other, the, so the guy on, the, on one side was saying, come on, Jesus, if you're really God, get yourself down and save us too. <laughs> he's the one who actually asked for salvation, but he's the one who didn't get it. He's the one who actually asked Jesus, save us too, if you're God. But he didn't get salvation, even though he asked for it. What did the other guy say? He said, guy on the other side, <laughs> stop, stop your mocking. This man has done nothing wrong for his sins. For, for, for his, he's done nothing wrong to deserve what he's getting. You and me, however, deserve what we're getting. You and me deserve what we're getting. And then he looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, just remember me. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He didn't ask him to forgive him. He didn't ask him to help him live a better life. He was about to die. He knew that he was without hope. He knew that he was without strength to, to earn any sort of favor with God. And he's hanging there on the cross just saying, Jesus, I know that according to the psalmist, that those who go into Sheol are forgotten. But Jesus, I'm just asking you, will you remember me? Will you remember me? And how did Jesus respond? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. That man received the salvation of God, even though he didn't even ask for it. And we need to take that into consideration, okay? It's not your prayer that woos God's love. No. In the Beatitudes, we're learning that these Beatitudes, at least these first few, they're not ways to get God to save you. They are ways to... They are, they are states of mind from which we can actually see God's love. Again, they are not ways that we can get God to send us His salvation. It's ways that we can receive a salvation that's already been sent our direction.
See, God has already sent his love to us. And that's kind of the case we're building in, in Romans, in John 3. God already sent his salvation down. The problem is not with trying to get God to send you salvation. God's already sent the salvation down. The problem is you are too full of yourself to, to take it. You are too full of this life to take it. There's nothing wrong with God and his intentions. There's nothing wrong with God and his love. God's not will- We read this this morning. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He sent his love to each one of you. The problem is you won't take it, editorially speaking. It's not that he didn't send Christ, it's that Christ was sent, okay? The gift, the package arrived at your doorstep. Amazon delivered. But are you going to go and take it and take ownership of it? Are you going to receive it? See, these are not ways to earn grace. These are ways to receive it. God already sent it without you having to do anything to earn it. The problem is you need to receive it. Recognizing that you have no... There's nothing that you did that got God to give it to you. He gave it to you before you were even born. He already had the plan in motion before creation even came into existence. He already had the plan in motion. It had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with anything good that you did. Or anything that you came to understand. Or anything that you... um, Any reformatting that you did in your life. It had nothing to do with any of that. God already had the plan in motion before before you even existed. It wasn't your strength that, that drew Christ down. No, it was your weakness that Christ came down for. So again, these to be poor in spirit, that if I'm poor in spirit, that doesn't woo God to send His love my direction. No, He already sent His love your direction a long time ago, before this sermon series ever started, before your life even existed. No, this is just showing us who is actually going to receive the gospel. Who are the people who are actually going to receive it? And we talked last week, it's not... You know, Jesus already said, rarely does a rich man receive it. Not because God didn't give it to him. It's because the rich, historically, are the ones who feel like they need nothing from anybody else. They got their life covered. They're good to go. Jesus, thanks for being a good person and giving us a moral compass. But I don't really need your salvation. That's not poor in spirit. That's Jesus was teaching. The rich rarely receive it. Because they don't have the right... They're not, they don't have the prostration to lay flat on their face to receive it. They think they're strong. And you know, it's not just rich according to the wealth of the world, it's the rich according to the Spirit. Oh, I'm a good person. Of course God would give me His love. No. That's not being poor in spirit. But only the poor in spirit can actually receive the gospel. If you're not poor in spirit, and it's, it's not that you can't understand the gospel and pray a prayer, it's that you truly won't receive it. Praying a prayer does not save you. God saves you. Jesus saves you through the shedding of his blood. The problem is not whether or not we get somebody to pray a prayer. The problem is, are we actually in a position with which we are actually going to receive the gospel, not just understand it? Because remember, the gospel is something that brings your soul to life. So don't you think your soul is going to be part of this? It's not just your mind that God came to save. 
Yeah, you re- your mind is renewed, and you need to understand it in order to receive it. But just because you understand it doesn't mean you receive it. When you're in poor in spirit, that's a position of prostration from which you can receive the gospel. It's not a position that gets God to send it to you. No, it's a position from which you can actually receive it. Because it's already been sent. And here we see another, blessed are those who mourn. And this is very closely associated with the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit is totally dependent on someone else to survive. How many people, how many of the homeless people have you ever seen are just living life to the full? They're just happy about how everything's going. No, those people who are completely dependent, who are completely depraved and beggarly, they're not typically your happiest people. And I also don't want you to get it wrong, get, get this wrong. The mourners, okay, don't just refer to people who are just sad all the time. That's not what it's talking, that's not what this is talking about. They're not, it's not just for the grim, the melancholy, the depressed, the whiny or the complaining people, people who are just always hurt and sad and discontented. These states of mind actually have no place in the believer. That's not what a believer is supposed to be. That's actually sin. Okay, all of these are sin. And it's, not just, it's also not just for people who suffer hardship. I've heard that before too. You know what? I've just lived such a hard life. God is surely going to give me mercy when I die. Just because you have a lot of hardship in life doesn't mean that God is just going to bypass all of the gospel and then just save you because he feels like it. That's also not what we're talking about when we're talking about the mourner. It does refer to those who understand the cause of the first commandment of the Beatitudes. Okay, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why, why is that so sad? Why is it sad to be completely destitute? Well, because you don't have anything to do to earn your salvation. And you need your salvation because you're full of sin. You're full of stuff that can, deserves hell, that deserves death. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So to mourn is to see this and actually apply that to yourself. And find that to actually be a bad thing. Some of us read that, and it's just no big deal. No big deal. That doesn't really apply to me. You know, I'm living my life. I'm getting through life. I'm, I'm doing just fine. This might apply to some people, the really bad ones. That doesn't really apply to me. Now, let me read that again. There is none. That refers to, that's all of, all of us, okay? There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Have you ever let that soak in? I'm not trying to make you depressed. 
And Jesus, when he said, blessed are they who mourn, he wasn't trying to get people to be depressed. He was actually trying to lead the people to the second part of that. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The only way to receive true comfort in the Spirit is to first be a mourner. So if you want to be comforted, you have to mourn. That's the gateway. If you want to be comforted, you have to fess up. You have to own your sin. You have to recognize that that's yours. That's not swept under the rug. It's right out in front. That causes grief. Okay, And we in our American society, we do everything possible to keep us from grieving. We usually think that money is the answer. If I just have all the money, then I can just buy my way out of misery. I can just keep getting stuff. I can just buy all... I can go, if I'm feeling down, I can just go shopping, or I can buy that new car, or I can you know, go and buy some you know, comfort foods, or... It's somehow tied to money. That's what, that's what we want to do. We do everything possible to just not be sad. If somebody's sad, well, what's wrong with you? You need to go and not be sad. As though sad, being sad was the enemy. No. Jesus is saying mourning is, the, is actually the way to salvation. To true comfort in God. If you're not going to mourn over your sin, if you're just going to kind of bypass it, and be like, you know what, okay, yeah, for all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God, but you don't actually see yourself as a sinner. You won't actually own the sin. Like, oh, there's actual sins in front of me. Specific ones that I can see. Those are mine. I did those. And they were wrong. And I'm guilty. And that actually means something to you to the point that you actually mourn about it. You know, sometimes we can present the gospel in a way that completely obliterates any need to mourn. Oh, just thank you, God, for forgiving me. I sinned, but, you know, come into my heart and save me. Oh, there was no mourning in that. There was no prostration in that. Jesus is saying... Blessed are they who mourn, for those are the people who will receive comfort from God. If you have not become a mourner, then you cannot take comfort in God. Thomas Akempis wrote several hundred years ago, We would willingly have others perfect, and yet we amend not our own faults. We would have others severely corrected, but not be corrected ourselves. If you want to learn something that will really help you, Thomas Akempis continues, learn to see yourself as God sees you, and not as you see yourself in the distorted mirror of your own self-importance. I'm too important to mourn over my sin. I don't need to mourn. It'll all work itself out eventually. I don't need to focus on how bad I am and how I deserve damnation, how I'm guilty for my sins, you know, those people over there, see, that's, the, that's, the, that's a great plague of the, the modern conservative Christian church mindset. All the other people out there are sinners. All of them have problems. Those people who are killing Christians, those people have problems. Those people who are aborting their babies, they have problems. 
All those, all those people in the prison, they have problems. All those drug addicts, they have problems. Those alcoholics who are beating their wives and running away and having babies with everybody they can meet. Those people have problems. And I know that I have problems too, but I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about everybody else. I want to talk about all everybody else's problems. And we, we are actually doing what Thomas Kempis said. We would willingly have other people perfect, but yet we mend not our own faults. We would have others severely corrected and not be corrected ourselves. We don't want the focus and the attention to be on us. So even perhaps some of us in our profession of faith, even in trying to beseech God for His salvation... We're doing everything possible to not have to think about how I'm a sinner and that I deserve condemnation for my sin. Because I don't want to feel bad about it. I don't want to feel bad. I don't want to mourn. I don't want to grieve. I don't want to feel vulnerable. Because it's the vulnerable people who get hurt. But it's only the vulnerable people who get saved. That's the blessing in this. That's the comfort in this. If you'll be vulnerable with God, the Bible says everything's naked and open to Him. He sees every part of you, even the disgraceful parts. If you're not willing to actually be open to Him and vulnerable with God, then you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. If you're not going to own it, if you're not going to own up to the fact that you're a sinner and mourn over that, you can't be saved. Well, let me look, let me show you here. Look at Second Corinthians. I had some other stuff in here that I wanted to say, but I don't think it's important at this point. Second Corinthians chapter five. Look at verse sixteen. Second Corinthians 5, verse 16 to 19. Therefore, wait, 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 verse 15. No, 14. Should we keep going back? So let's just start in verse 14. All right, one more, 13. I know I wrote, I wrote this down and I was studying and I was studying and then, and then when I'm up here and it's, the train of thought is moving and I just want to keep reading all this stuff. So verse 13, um, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of God, love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Say, and then he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. Okay? So he's saying, every, if, if we've all died in Christ. We've all died to our sins. The sins are gone. They're obliterated. Completely gone. And we've all been resurrected to new life. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and received his favor. We've all been risen to new life so that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and for us and rose again. And then in verse 16, we see here, Therefore, because of this, we were dead in one fashion of life, and now we're alive in a completely new fashion of life that we'd never experienced before. Therefore, because of this transformation that is picturized in baptism, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Okay, We don't even think about Christ anymore according to the flesh, even though it's important for us to understand it because that's the foundation for what, what Christ did, his incarnation. But yet now we see him as the resurrected Savior, the mediator, the one who comes to our aid, who vindicates us. Who protects us. We see him now like this. Okay, so completely different. Therefore, in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. See, Paul is saying, we're not thinking, any of you who have been made new through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Ghost, we don't think about you anymore like you were, according to the sins that condemned you. Because in salvation, God cleans you out of all of that sin. God completely obliterates that sin. Not that you don't sin anymore. It's just that when you do sin, those sins were already forgiven from the foundations of the earth. According to the plan that God had put in place through Christ Jesus. We don't think of you anymore in terms of your sin. We now think of you in terms of your new life, your forgiveness, your cleanness. Therefore, we don't resent each other. We don't become bitter against each other as though they had sin that they had yet to be forgiven. No, they've been forgiven by God. And that's the foundation for we, us forgiving other people. That's why Jesus teaches in another place, if you can't forgive other people, then you haven't been forgiven. Because if God has forgiven us, then why do you condemn us? We don't think, you know, that's part of the train of thought of Paul here. I'm not thinking about anybody according to their sin. No, I'm thinking about them thus. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's a picture of what he's going to do on a grander scheme in the future. All things have become new. Right now, it's you. Those of you who have prostrated yourself before the Lord and received His favor. You've become new. You're no longer to regard yourself according to your past sins. And this is comfort in the Spirit. This is, the com- this is why we can have comfort after mourning. Because we who are, who are poor in spirit, who have mourned over our sins and received the gospel of salvation, God cleans out, gets rid of all your filth. And now, you're new. Now you're clean. You don't have to be guilty anymore. Because you're not guilty in God's eyes. Why would you be guilty in your own eyes? Not that you don't repent when you do sin and turn. I mean, the, the life of discipleship is a life of repentance where you see your sin and you turn from it. But you're already forgiven. You're clean. You have encouragement in the Spirit. Now when you feel guilty, you can turn that upside down, and now you can rejoice in the forgiveness that you've already received. And turn from your sin. You can't rejoice over it while planning to do it again. But continue on. He's a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 18, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciled. To be brought back together. When there's a relational problem between you and somebody, what's the goal? We want to reconcile. We don't want to split. Reconciling is the opposite of splitting. 
Reconcile is making unity where there was disunity. And because of our sin, there is disunity between us and God, which should cause us to grieve. But when we accept Christ, when we receive His favor, we receive His love and His forgiveness, we become part of this story. All things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ Jesus. He's restored that disunity. He's brought it back together. And you cannot be one with Christ if you are still in your sin. If you are still dead in your sin. Only those who are made clean can become one with Christ. And he's given us that ministry in verse 9. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What? Not imputing their trespasses to them. Okay? Did you sin? Have you sinned? The ministry of forgiveness in Jesus Christ means, yeah, you sinned, but I'm not holding that against you anymore. I held it against Christ. It's not that it was swept under the rug. It's not that God is letting time take care of everything. No, God condemned sin in the flesh. Most specifically, he condemned your sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he doesn't have to count your sin against you because he counted your sin against Christ. That's what it says, that's what it means here. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Okay, he was bringing the world back into unity with him. How? Because he doesn't have to impute our trespasses against us anymore. Because they've been paid for. God doesn't call you a sinner anymore. He calls you righteous. Because Christ took our sin. And now, in verse 19, the end of that, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And now we, this is the great commission, to go and tell this story to the nations, starting with our own community. Now we have the job of telling everybody else about, you can be clean, you can be righteous in God's eyes. Here's how. But how do we get to this point where we can actually rejoice in the favor of God? How we can be comforted in the loving bond that God has brought us into in Christ. First, being poor in spirit, recognizing your poor estate. There has to be some mourning over your sin because where there's no mourning, there's no real ownership of sin. Have you ever had this conversation with your spouse? Yeah, I know you said you're sorry, but you don't really care about what you did. You don't really care that you hurt me. <laughs> Makes it hard to forgive when you're willing to say, okay, fine, I did something wrong. But you don't really care. Not enough to confess it yourself. Not enough to repent of it. Not to ask for forgiveness. When was the last time you asked somebody for forgiveness? Simply said sorry. Rather, we just, we deflect the attention. Well, it's because of the medicine I'm on. I'm grumpy. I'm sorry. You're just going to have to get over it. <laughs> this is who I've always been. Just get over it. You're just going to have to accept me the way I am. Because that's how it's always, always going to be. You're not really sorry. You know, you're not mourning over this. You're just causing more mourning for everybody else. Saying, suck it up, this is who I am. That's kind of a trend in the church today. Not just the church, it's everywhere. It's one of those worldly things that's crept into the church because we're part of society, are we not? Um, we get caught up in those trends, those that, lo that false logic that ruins relationships. 
oh, we, oh, America, we have all the relationship advice in the world and all these high-paid psychologists and all these pills and all this counseling, but we are the most broken nation in the world. Something's wrong, <laughs> but we're adopting it. Okay? If you won't mourn over your sin, it's because you haven't accepted it, really. You haven't taken ownership of it. Until you can take ownership of it and be vulnerable with God, sometimes you have to be vulnerable with each other to be vulnerable with God. Because if you can't be vulnerable with somebody who has no right to condemn you, how can you be vulnerable with one who has every right to condemn you? I mean, that's the scary one. If you can't confess your, your sins to each other, how can, you, how can you truly confess it to God? I mean, he's the scary one. He's the one who should be, you should be afraid of. You know, the people sitting here, they can't do anything against you. We didn't, I mean, they're not the lawgiver. They can't hold you accountable to their law. Only God is the lawgiver. Only he is scary <laughs> in, the, in regards to punishment for sin. We need to humble ourselves and stop trying to sweep everything under the rug. Because if you're doing that, you can't repent. You can't really confess. Again, I'm not telling you how you can get God to show you favor. God already shows you favor. God has already given it to you. I'm showing you through what Christ is teaching us here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, how you can be a person who can receive it. Not through works of righteousness. No. How can, you, how can you receive the gift? It's not just by praying a magical prayer. We're not summoning a spirit here by enchanting an incantation. That's not salvation, and that's how sometimes we treat it. Oh, just pray this prayer on the back of this tract. That's, that's I mean, that's false worship. Just to tell somebody to pray a prayer and you'll be saved. That's false. That's false teaching. That's not gospel. I mean, the rich young ruler was ready to, to do whatever Christ told him to do. If Christ were to, told, to tell that rich young ruler, oh great, just pray this prayer and you'll have eternal life. Woo! Great! He could have said that. He could have said, believe these little elements of the gospel, pray this prayer and you'll be set. The man was ready to do something like that. If Jesus was all about just getting people to to join the church, he could have had a much better go of it if he had just used that strategy. No. Why didn't he do that? Because that's not the way of salvation. The way of salvation is exactly what Christ is teaching us, showing us what kind of framework do you need to have in your soul to receive the gospel? God, I, I came to you die for your sin. What more evidence do you need that God loves you and that God is showing you favor? When he's teaching this, he was there. Physical manifestation of God's love right there in front of them. What more evidence did they need? The problem is not with the evidence. The problem is with our framework. 
where we're coming from. We can't receive the gospel unless we are who Jesus says we need to be. So that's what I implore with you about. Will you humble yourself? I mean, that's really what what it comes down to. Will you humble yourself so that you can receive it? There's nothing wrong with God and His love and His favor is not broken. We are. Will you humble yourself? Will you admit your sins? Will you admit that you're a sinner? Will you take ownership of it? Or are you still hiding from that fact? You're, you'll, you'll accept it cognitively. For all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Okay, I understand that. I memorized that when I was six. But are you citing that in your head but hiding from it in reality. Let's not do that anymore, okay? Do you want, I want you guys to rejoice in the comfort of the Spirit. I, you know, this is kind of hard to hear, perhaps, but it's the way to get to the encouragement. The encouragement of knowing that I am a child of God, that I am set free, that I am clean, that I am righteous now because of what Jesus did. If we're not rejoicing in that, if that's not exciting to you, then maybe you haven't mourned over your sin. Yeah, life's supposed to be a type of roller coaster, I guess. <laughs> well, it means that something's living, right? You've had small children before. They're vivacious. They're a roller coaster. It's because there's so much life going on. Sometimes that results in a lot of sadness. But the joy is insurmountable. And that's what we can have here. If we are willing to mourn over our sin, then we will be recipients of the greatest joy in eternity. And we could taste it now in the comfort and the generosity of God's love. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts to open our eyes to see this. Because I can't make anybody see through words that I speak. But Lord, Spirit, in your spirit, you can blow that upon them so that everybody here can see it and to humble ourselves. Lord, I just pray that you would show us. Cleanse us of all the clutter and the walls that we've built up in our life because of fear, because of pride, because of self-righteousness. Cleanse us, Lord, so that we may receive your favor. We thank you for giving it freely. Thank you for the freeness of your love. I just pray that you would put us in a position where we can actually appreciate it because we can see it because we've submitted our way to you first through mourning the sin that's within us. You are the bread of heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen.